With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Slate Political Gab Fest is brought to you by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper mattresses come with free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. And get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com political and using the promo code political. And by Concur. Employees get simplified expense reports and business leaders get full visibility into their company's spending habits. Expense, travel, invoice. Learn more at concur.com gabfest. And by Texture, the mobile app that gives you full access to more than 150 of the world's most popular magazines anytime using your phone or tablet. Read Vogue, People, Esquire, Time, and hundreds more from back issues to the one currently on the newsstand. Right now, try Texture for free at texture.com slash political. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for March 10th, 2016, the Maybe It's Hillary Who Should Drop Out edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. That was a, the, the wan chuckle over there came from John Dickerson of Face the Nation. Hello, John. We're in Hello, the studio. David. We're in the studio together. In the New York Times studio in New York, New York, is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. That's a lot of brand placement there. Hi, Emily. Uh, hello. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. I like your provocative title for the episode. Oh, thank you. I came up with it all by myself. On this week's GabFest... Is it the end for the non-Trump candidates in the GOP race? Is never Trump becoming now Trump? What is going to happen in Ohio and Florida next week? Then Hillary Clinton's defeat in Michigan, one of the greatest upsets in the history of polling, according to polling experts. What happened and does it fundamentally change the race? Then we'll talk about the life and death of Nancy Reagan and news on what the first lady or the first gentleman should do. And of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. And in Slate Plus, we talk all the time about our disgust with the modern presidential campaign. But now we're going to talk about what we like about it. We're going to we're going to quell a little bit about things that we enjoy in the presidential campaign. If you're not yet a Slate Plus member, you can get it by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. Now, two important announcements, huge announcements, huge. Pay attention. First of all, the GabFest is getting hotter and fresher. We are now going to be posting it on Thursday during drive time, a full eight hours earlier than you've been getting it. You'll be getting the show now. You can listen on the way home. You can be, be fully current with the GabFest on Thursdays instead of waiting until Friday morning. So please let us know what you think about that. You can tweet at us at Slate GabFest or post on the Facebook page if you like it, if you object. Uh, we think it's going to be a great improvement. The second one... The Slate Political GabFest live show comes to Atlanta, our first trip to the South. John, I think, is probably going to be—you're excited about this, John. I am. I am. I'm always excited. 
I'm in a constant state. Why is it just John who's excited? excited. I, I feel like John, John. I feel like the Atlanta John. John was the person who sort of first planted the seed. We should do an Atlanta show. Um, That's true. So we are going to be doing a I'm live like Johnny show Appleseed that way in Atlanta. Our first live show in the South. So we're expecting people to come in from across the South, from Mississippi, from That's Stone Mountain, Georgia, from <laughs> what else did Dr. King mention? The show is Wednesday, April 27th at 7.30. Uh, there is going to be a pre-show cocktail hour with us for if you, those folks who purchase a special uh, ticket package. There's a You can have a drink with us and then get reserved seating at the show. And you can go to slate.com slash live for more information on the show and to get tickets. So please join us in Atlanta, Wednesday, April 27th, 7.30 p.m. at the First Center for the Arts, slate.com slash live. Donald Trump's path to nomination got wider and clearer this week. Brambles cleared out of the way. He had big wins on Tuesday in Michigan, Mississippi, and Hawaii. He also won uh, over the weekend, the last weekend in a couple of states. And his victories have, first of all, all but destroyed Marco Rubio's campaign, which we'll talk about. And he has also made it much harder for anybody else, notably Ted Cruz being the most likely other suspect to compete with him um, to prevent him from getting a majority of delegates. If Trump wins Ohio and Florida on Tuesday, strong signs that he's going to win Florida, certainly. Ohio maybe is more up in the air. There are only miracles, only asteroid strikes probably that could prevent him from getting the nomination, wrapping up the nomination. John, how did this become – is it as inevitable as I just presented it? Well, you mean if he wins Ohio and Florida? Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's inevitable, I guess, for two reasons. If he won Florida and Ohio, it would mean that he has a durability that would uh, suggest he's going to win lots of other future states, right? It would suggest that uh, non-college-educated voters that have been his base are a solid base. Those early decider Trump supporters who have been his base everywhere are his base, and there are not enough late-deciding voters who go to the other candidates uh, to change him. I tend to go by the calculations of 538 with Aaron uh, Bykoff. I think I have no idea if, if that's how you pronounce his name, and David Wasserman. And they basically have looked at the entire map, looked at the turnout so far, and adjusted how the candidates are doing relative to their targets and relative to the way things will go forward You know, in, in the states and how they... Um, look for the candidates. And in that measurement, Trump is 107% on target. Cruz is at 69%, Rubio 42, Kasich 19. So if Trump won Ohio and Florida, he would be at 115. So he would he would be well on his way, and it would have to be a catastrophic event that would stop him. Emily, what? Ha- let's talk about Marco Rubio for a bit before we get into to more about the, the what the race is going to become. What happened? Yeah, it's amazing that the candidate who the Republican voters were supposed to choose, the likable one, the electable one, the Latino one, the young one, the fresh face, the guy who early on seemed to be having these decent, if not like stellar debate performances, he just has completely collapsed. And I feel like My main explanation is the murder-suicide that John brought up um, a while ago when he was talking about Chris Christie destroying himself to destroy Marco Rubio. So Rubio took a big hit then, and then 
Rubio's attempt to turn on Trump and use Trump's bullying tactics against Trump might have roughed up Trump a bit. I mean, we are seeing that the late-breaking voters are not choosing Trump um, in as great numbers. But it also, I think, just completely wrecked Rubio because his claim was that he was not that guy. And he sunk so low and he didn't do it especially skillfully. And we ended up just like in the total gutter of, you know, penis jokes and like and references in a debate in a way that was just so undignified. I mean, every bodily fluid, I feel like, has been discussed. It was so undignified. And I think that really hurt Rubio in the yeah, end. That, uh, Rubio's problem, I it's not clear whether his problem was performance or that he never had a constituency. And it probably is the latter compounded by the former. And, uh, you know, when everybody said he's everybody's second choice, th- that's true. And it means you're never going to be anybody's first choice as long as everybody else is around. Ted Cruz has a constituency. He has underperformed with that constituency. Think about all the southern states that he's lost, Alabama, Arkansas, Georgia, Tennessee, Louisiana, uh, Mississippi. Those were states that were all supposed to be part of his original game plan. On the question about late deciding voters, I've been looking at them all across all the contests. So I was overplaying the effect of Rubio's trying to, uh, you know, get in there with Trump and and scrap with him. You well, think that these structural factors are the, more important? I think, well, it depends. I mean, we'll see once we get down. I mean, the problem is once it gets down to a two-man race, it's if it's if it might be too late. But um, if late deciders were choosing among just two candidates, is there something about the makeup of the late deciders in future states that would suggest that they would overwhelmingly go for the other person? Um Trump's been getting anywhere from 20 to 20 to 28 percent of the late deciding vote. His his rivals have been getting 35, 36. I mean, it's not he's not, they're not swamping him with late deciders. So he, they would have to in those future states. And that's, you know, in some of the future states, it doesn't matter if you do well. I mean, Ohio and Florida, if you get late deciders, that's that's fine. But if you come in second, you don't get any delegates. John, what do you hear from Republicans about what they will actually do with Trump as a nominee. They now really have to face this prospect in a way that they, they've been avoiding, and maybe they're still avoiding. Yeah. What do you hear about what what the party is going to actually do? For the moment, I think the energy of those people who would have to have a reckoning and a, with Trump are pouring their energies into the scenarios for derailing him. I think the most... The best alternative has always been that he loses in Ohio and Florida, uh, and then he gets denied the 1,237 delegates he needs. It looks like Rubio is not doing well in Florida. The reason he's staying in the race, by the way, is that he is the host body for the Never Trump movement because a lot of absentee ballots have already been cast for him, they say, and early voting ballots have been cast for him. So if anybody is going to beat Trump in Florida, it's likely to be Rubio just because hometown kid and and the votes are in the bank already. So if he were to drop out, all those votes in the bank would essentially be wasted. Even if Rubio's got no shot of getting a, de- a nomination ever, he still can provide the carcass through which the never Trump movement could beat Trump in in Florida. Sorry to interrupt. Just one game theory thing, which there have been a lot of sort of how can we game this out. Has there been any discussion of Cruz and Kasich saying, you know what, it's most important that we – Get flo- so we're going to tell everyone in Florida, vote, vote for, for Rubio. Yeah. We're going to tell everyone in Ohio, vote for Kasich. Just not because we think that they're the best candidates, but right. we're trying to stop yeah. Trump and that that's what we need to do. Yeah. So there, that has not been explicit from any of the candidates, although Marco Rubio has said, I'm the only one to stop Trump in Florida. And so you sh- if you want to stop Trump, vote for me. 
That's different than colluding actually out loud with the other candidates. That collusion has not taken place. But Mitt Romney, in his speech, made that explicit recommendation that everybody vote for Kasich in Ohio and Rubio in Florida. And that doesn't seem, according to the polls, Kasich is a, a new Fox poll that came out Wednesday night has hit Kasich ahead in Ohio. And that would be really interesting, not just because it would say a couple of interesting things. One, the non-college educated white voter in Ohio is a fascinating creature. Um, and We if, study him in the wild. <laughs> Anthropologists have gone out. And, and there are these stories him. about Mahoning Valley on the eastern side of the state voters switching their registration from Democratic to Republican to move over and go for Trump, which is a kind of a Reagan Democrat kind of move. And that has interesting implications both for the primary, but then also, of course, of course, yeah, I that's our, how they Irish. say it in the Mahoney <laughs> in the Mahoney Valley. That's what they say. If so anyway, David, to your, to your question, no, the candidates themselves have not said, let's do this. Um, and it and it so it's not really it's not really congealed into a into a everybody talks about that strategy, but it's not kind of explicit. Emily, what what do you think? Like John, John's slightly punted on the original question. But what do you think that the. Republicans are going to do once they find that Trump is their nominee. They've woken up in bed. They've gotten married to this guy in Vegas last night. What are they actually going to do? Having all these people having said these things about him, uh, so much of the party leadership disavowing him, how are they going to run with him? So some people are going to follow Chris Christie and Jeff Sessions into his arms, and a lot of people are going to denounce them and have a big debate about how to protect the party. And I assume there's going to be some movement to use a libertarian ticket or some way of getting a conservative, you know, a true conservative third party candidate out there. Really? But I also do you think that's going to happen, that John? Work. You think they're going to try- talk about it? I don't think they'll actually do it. Try and have a third party. There's people, yeah, no, people are definitely talking about it. the problem with it is getting the signatures. Um, and also. Could you use the Libertarian Party as a vehicle for your candidate? They already um, have the, they're already on the ballot. The Conservative Party is on the, over. the Conservative ballot's on the party too, but presumably people right. who are enthusiastic enough about a party to, to get all the signatures and get on the ballot, even though they're never going to win in the general, would be possibly resistant to the idea that the rump Republican Party would just come r run in and say, oh, sorry, we're going to take your party and, and run our own guys. So my guess is that might be a little harder to do. And it's not like just like a turnkey thing. Um, yeah. But you I mean, it depends how kind of do they the number of uh, Vichy France um, analogies I'm, I've been hearing over the last few weeks is uh, is uh, increasing. But one person I talked to who um, is not a fan of Trump talked about trying to register a Republican in um, enough states, crucial states, battleground states, there are only about a dozen, uh, to basically register in about six or seven that would just basically kill kill Trump, hand the election to Hillary, but not um, destroy the—I mean, that would, of course, destroy the party. Can I ask another but. question about the politics of this? How important is it for the Supreme Court nomination that Obama will probably do soon— that Trump is the likely nominee. In other words, the Republicans denounce the guy who, if elected president as their candidate, would pick this Supreme Court justice if Obama's nominee doesn't get I, through. What yeah. does that matter I for think the politics of their? Yeah, I think it does. I think, and this you've you've heard Donald Trump make this case uh, repeatedly recently, um, and basically, this is a 
a version of corollary or similar argument to the one Grover Norquist has had for years, which is, I don't care about who the president is. I just care that he's a Republican with a working hand who can sign Paul Ryan's budget. So the argument will be, if Trump is the nominee, don't go form a rump party because the next president, if he's a Republican, might pick one, two, three, four Supreme Court nominees. And Donald Trump will certainly take direction and pick somebody who's going to be better than whoever Hillary Clinton picks. He may not pick Antonin Scalia or Samuel Alito, but he's going to pick at the very worst, you know, he's going to pick a Roberts or actually probably not. He would probably pick, you know, a Mike Ludig or somebody who's just, you know, about as solid as conservatives would want. My, you know, I don't know. We'd have to see at the time. He'll be super flexible. But your point is basically the right one, which is having a warm body with an R next to their name is really the most important thing where the court is concerned, and that could focus the mind and dissuade people from having a third party that would put these decisions in Hillary Clinton's hands. Do you guys think fundamentally that this the problem for Trump, for most Republicans, is the that he's he's wrong on policy? You know, he has these anti-free trade. He's too extreme, even for the Republicans on immigration. He's too soft on social issues, so he's not actually a conservative. Or is it that he is his unappealing personality and his racism is disqualifying? Why does it have to be one or the other? Although I think I pick racism over policy any day as the bigger problem. But he's in not in terms of the witness. image of the party. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think I mean, but, well, because partly I, I think I agree with you in the sense that I don't think Trump has any principles, and he'll he'll you know just do whatever. I'm not sure right. he actually believes in any of it. So it's it's more like he he likes he wants Optics. the power. I think it's a combination of things. I think um, on moral grounds, some people don't like him. Uh, on cultural grounds, a number of uh, evangelical leaders, by which I don't mean, by which I don't mean the professional evangelical leaders, the ones who are involved thoroughly in politics. I think there are a lot of people in the religious Christian movement who worry about the slippage of culture and how once you lower expectations and lower the guardrails that everybody starts to act out. And we've certainly seen that happen in Republican oh politics. God. I mean, it's gotten—it's amazing. I mean, obviously, for everything from the other candidates to the crowds, we are watching a hyper-fast version of what these people who worry about the culture— and, and Trump exacerbates that. So they were, there were people who worry about him on that front. I think there are other people who worry, uh, just pure political terms, that he's going to hurt candidates in swing states in the Senate. The seven senators on the Republican side who are running in states Obama won. The members of the House are worried. Then I think people on policy grounds think, like, basically he'll just make deals and not stand up for principles. I think then there's the national security class, which thinks you can't just go around the world talking the way he does. But uh, besides the roads and the sewers <laughs> and the peace, what have the Romans brought up, yeah. John? <laughs> so I think that everybody, there's a lot of reasons for people uh, to grab a piece of why they don't like him. His negatives uh, in the general election are staggering. I mean, his uh, in the latest Wall Street Journal NBC poll, his positive rating is 25%. His negative is 64%. That's a negative 39 delta. I, I, 39 is a number that's really seems to me is highly insurmountable because it's it's with a group of people who are not likely to uh, you know be find him um, charming whatever he does in the general election context. All right. 
Let's hear from our first sponsor, which is Casper. The rhetoric of the presidential candidates may be nightmare-inducing, but Casper will ensure that you're still able to get the deep sleep you need both during and after the campaign season. Casper makes an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. These mattresses are the perfect combination of latex and memory foam for the utmost comfort. You'll get just the right sink and just the right bounce. With their risk-free trial and return policy, you can try sleeping on a Casper for 100 days with free delivery and painless returns. And right now, get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com political and using the promo code political. Meanwhile, back in blue America, there's another kind of craziness. The Wizards at 538, already mentioned by John, they know almost as much about polling as John does. But maybe oh, we'll... God, now you know so much more. <laughs> uh, but they called Bernie Sanders' narrow victory in the Michigan primary on Tuesday one of the biggest shocks in the history of politics and polling. The evidence was that Hillary led in Michigan by 20 points. Slightly overshadowed in this upset victory by Sanders is the fact that Hillary on Tuesday night still pulled further ahead of Sanders in the delegate race thanks to her crushing victory in Mississippi. Still, Emily, should Hillary drop out? (laughs) No, Hillary shouldn't drop out. But here's something that I keep... (laughs) Running into what you are like. I like that you took it seriously. I like that you took the question seriously. Go ahead. Well, you posted in what seemed an earnest manner, so I was returning the favor. Here's the thing that I keep running into and like grumbling to myself over. I understand that we are in a race for delegates, and that's like the way the primaries work. What I don't understand is why we care at all about the fact that Hillary is sweeping the South, because those states are lost, most of them are utterly lost to the Democrats in the general election. So to me, the fact that she lost Michigan, I mean, it was super close. But if she starts losing other purple states in the Midwest and elsewhere, then I think the Democrats have to be really worried. I well, you guys, how do you guys think about this difference between the delegate race and the primary season and looking ahead to the general election and how you weight the victories and losses in the different states? Well, the South matters because of its African-American population and her ability to, to get votes among African-Americans is, is important in the Democratic coalition. Now, the, con, the pushback, well, not actually the pushback in the against that is uh, that in Michigan, the Bernie Sanders did better with the African-American um, population there and that's more that maps more closely to what the african-american population might be like and the sense of enthusiasm in the african-american population might be like in the general uh, election so right. um so her dominance in the south that was that was why it was important i mean other than the fact this is about math it is about who makes up the democratic party and while um in the general election it doesn't matter it does matter to the Democratic Party. I mean, the Democratic Party can't just be a Northeastern city party. But your point, Emily, is the right one in terms of the electability argument. I think it's still very hard to make the case that Bernie Sanders is um, is electable in a general election. But even if he's running against Donald Trump, you don't care about. the Well, I know. I guess I, I guess that's uh, that that I mean, if you're running against Donald Trump, I guess anybody's um, possibly Wait, electable. You, you, you want to make the case that Bernie Sanders is more electable against Donald Trump than Hillary Clinton is? No. No, he didn't oh. say no, 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 the no. opposite. I might argue that. that no, I was saying that to you, Emily. That wasn't oh, that directed yet. Well, I'm not sure. I mean, it seems crazy to me. I've been 
like dismissive of Bernie Sanders, but actually this victory in Michigan kind of changed my thinking about it. And and in the head-to-head poll, I don't know, maybe these are silly polls to pay attention to right now because they're so um, early, but in the head-to-head polls against Trump, he does better than Clinton, doesn't he? Yeah, he's up by 10 in the average of polls that is, over Clinton. That is not but those meaningful. Are, this is, yeah, none of that. Why not? Because we're a million miles from the, from the, okay. but I mean, to the, so anyway, but back to um, Ohio, Wisconsin, Illinois, Pennsylvania, if he's able to continue in those states, then it's, um, then it shows a real anemia and problem for her. Um, and that's, you know, I mean, there are, the, the problems for her are there. Regardless, I mean, she's not exciting, even though she has I mean, she's gotten more votes than Donald Trump. But um, there's not the sense of excitement for her. And she hasn't been able to find a way to touch that excitement. Um, and that's a you know, that's a problem she needs to I don't know. How and you the legal it, problems but. from these emails are hanging over her. I mean, I keep hearing people, you know, muttering about the possibility of an indictment. And I don't want to say that in a way that gives credence to it. It seems far fetched to me. But I feel like the fact that it isn't just like done, clear, that's not going to happen is this lingering. It's like letting air out little by little from the excitement around her campaign. I had the feeling I was watching the debate on Wednesday night. I just maybe I'm maybe I'm high-eyed and optimistic here, but she is so smart. She has so much experience. She so knows what she's talking about, and that in the long run, like there's a very there's a significant fraction of Americans who are angry. But in the long run, I think when it comes time to voting for a president, people like they they want someone who is who's smart and reasonable and capable and responsible. I think, and like I don't I just don't see how she. She doesn't in, win this in the long game, even though she is not, you know, even though she's not exciting. Sanders, I think, in the average of polls, beats Trump by ten points. Clinton beats him by six, a little over six. So that's not such a mass. That's not such a huge difference that uh, people, you know, should say, "Oh my gosh, Bernie Sanders is the much better general election candidate." John, were you right? And I everything can't... David said about Hillary's strengths is completely true, and it does seem like in the end that would be the where the country would land. And yet, there is this way in which she feels out of step with this particular moment. You know, Sanders answers questions like, no, I wouldn't do that. And she gives a more hedging, like, well, we'll see, you know, kind of incrementalist answer that sounds much more like a kind of typical politician's dodge. And I can feel in myself listening that there is it's the same way I feel listening to Trump. Sometimes it's just like a breath of fresh air that someone is saying something that politicians never say. Yeah. This race is, in a lot of ways, feels like the comeuppance that that comes from years and years and years of politicians basically saying a lot of words that are meaningless and that just people Completely are so agree. starving, so starving for somebody to say something that resembles uh, a, an honest thought. Of what, even if it's a repulsive, honest thought that they're like well, grasping. But I mean, I, that's I've gone too I, far. I guess but. I don't think. I guess I don't think that politics has suffered as much from that as as maybe you guys do. I mean, John, that was the premise, as you did brilliantly on Whistle Stop, John, of John McCain's 2000 campaign was premised on that. Right. I don't think Barack Obama's 2008 campaign was that far off from that. So it's he's not the the only person who's well, ever. Done, and Trump is doing it. Trump's doing something different. Trump is a truth teller, but he it's it's the repulsive, violent way he does Snake-like. it that's so that's so different. 
Yeah, but I, but my point is that it's undifferentiated. The hunger for somebody who says something that seems like it's not calculated, prepackaged, and mm-hmm. and comes in clamshell uh, plastic. Yeah. Can I? Um, it seems to me that um, we're in a permanent state of base. I mean, we've been this way for a while, but um, basically, whoever you are and wherever you're running, everybody there's going to be a lot of people who hate you i'm just thinking about politicians and the hatred towards them and how political experience is no longer i mean political experience is now a total detriment to a candidacy even among democrats who made fun of novices and non-scientific approaches and kind of the who you'd rather have a beer with uh vision of voting and i'm just wondering what how we how that gets fixed how somebody who has experience in politics ever uses that as a positive thing in their campaign? I like go back to, and I'm sure there's an original sin that predates this original sin. I think that the, the way the nihilistic anti-government message that the Republicans have put out has made politics a, an impossible profession now. They've delegitimized government for much of what it does as an overriding message of the conservative movement. And in the course of it, they also have delegitimized politics. They've said they've delegitimized politics in the sense that they've said politicians are untrustworthy and and you can't have professional politicians. They've also delegitimized politics in the sense that they don't believe that, that you can actually do politics. They say that the kind of the art of a compromise of politics is not acceptable. And as a result, there's a vast swath of Americans who who have been just message and message and message that government and service and and political activity is corrupting. And in the same way that in the New Deal, the New Deal kind of did the reverse of this. The New Deal with its idea that the government is going to solve everything, that politicians are there, you know, to serve and, and serve the public. And it overstated that and it overdid that. But that this we we're now like having an exact kind of mirror image of that. And it's totally completely toxic and it will only recover if the country has some sort of true dire catastrophe and only the federal government somehow steps in to, to save it. Because I, yeah. I just don't think, I think that the ideological messaging the Republicans have done about this and the actions around this has, has truly made politics an, an unacceptable activity. I think the, um, I think your, solu- your solution is probably right. I think the, uh, the, I wonder if the assessment isn't too blunt though, because Donald Trump is, uh, winning and certainly has changed the conversation in the Republican Party and his vision of government is far more activist than the than the it's one true. you sketched. It is, although let me, sorry John, I know yeah, to yeah, interrupt yeah. your point I, that's absolutely true but it's not a pol- his vision is not of politics his vision of gov- is government of executive action. It's, sure. It's but, not It's not that, that we are going to get together and compromise uh, uh, it's, a, it's like I'm just going to do this. No, well although he does talk a lot about getting together and, and making deals with Congress and, and working things out. You may not believe but it. But the subtext just, is, yeah. like, I'm going to yeah, do yeah. this uh, as a leader. But I think also, though, there's a fair share of this, and there always has been um, in both parties, but there's a fair share of this on the left, which is that the compromises that are necessary in politics, of which Clinton is the embodiment and, of, and which is at the heart of some disappointments with President Obama, are also illegitimate. How you revive that from the left, I suppose you'd revive it by, and Obama tried to do this, revive it by being disconnected from that portion of the system that they find so objectionable, which is not just the mealy, the measly results, but the fact that you're taking money from the people who seem to get the benefit of all of the, um, 
of everything. And so that's where Sanders again wins and and beats Obama and Clinton both, who obviously raised a great deal of money from the from special interests. Right. Uh, but then on the other hand, one wonders what Bernie Sanders would actually be like if he was president. How would he govern? We don't really have a map for that yeah. because he seems right. Right. And also, by the way, going back to your point about the South, I mean, this is where the primaries have not um, as well as Bernie Sanders has done. And it's a it's an amazing thing. If Donald Trump weren't the story that he is this year, Bernie Sanders has done an, an extraordinary thing in the in the primaries. But he has not created the revolution that um, he that he says he'll need in order to uh, govern. I mean, the, the fact that he can't win in the South means that he, there are impediments to his ideas. And the way he talks about his ideas is that they are so self-evident that they will not only be able to rally Democrats of all different kinds, but that they will swamp Republican obstructionism because the country will rally so violently behind the things he's putting forward. And we haven't really been able to see him do that across all the Democratic Party, let alone across the whole country. Okay, let's leave it there. Let's hear from our next sponsor this week, which is Concur. As a business leader, I know that employee satisfaction is just as important as the bottom line. That's why there's Concur. Only Concur offers simple and intuitive expense reporting tools that benefit both your employees and your business. With Concur, employees can create expense reports that practically write themselves. All they have to do is take a photo of their receipt, and Concur creates and categorizes the expense entry. As an employer, you get accurate, consolidated spending data instantly, giving you the visibility and the insight to drive cost savings. Happier employees, more productivity, and the data you need, all leading to a healthier bottom line. Expense, travel, invoice. Learn more at concur.com slash GabFest. Nancy Reagan, the wife and widow of Ronald Reagan, died this week at age 94. She, of course, had a modest career as a movie actress and then a grand career as a political spouse. She was the first lady of, of all of our childhoods, the kind of most first lady, first lady that I certainly of my life. There was the, her famous gaze, the gaze in all caps, where she would look adoringly up at her husband. You know, she was very conscious of her role as, as a helpmeet for her husband and really spent her life as a helpmeet to her, to her husband all the way through to his decline through Alzheimer's, where she was, she was fiercely protective of him and fiercely protective of his legacy. She was, of course, extremely controversial in some ways. Her lavish tastes, her taking gifts and loans from designers, uh, taking money from rich friends to redecorate the White House and buy new china, her use of an astrologer after her husband was almost assassinated to help keep his schedule safe. Is Nancy Reagan a kind of first lady we won't have again? Is she a good model? Like, what are the other potential models for for first spousedom? But first, John, I want to. Did you did you know her? Did you ever meet her? I'd met her, but no, gosh, I didn't. I didn't know her, but yeah, I met her a few times. When in the eighties through your yeah, mom? Yeah, when she was. Yeah, before she was. Um, I mean, after they after he had won, but before she was the first lady. Uh, and then I think I met her again at one of the debates mm-hmm. later. I mean, much later after he died. Is Emily, do you think that her uh, adoring model of first lady is a model that could still exist? Yeah, I 
actually feel like we could go back to some version of it. It would be different. It would be updated. But that notion of defining the office in terms of supporting your husband rather than using it as a platform for your own issues, I think that could return. It's such a hard and odd job that, right? I mean, my favorite anecdote about Nancy Reagan is that she put First Lady on her tax forms as her occupation. There's something, I mean, she's kind of right about that, actually. Like, I know you don't get a salary, but you do have a whole office. There is a way in which, of course, it's a job. And yet, it's a really weird job. You're only there because you're married to someone else. You know, we've made the presidency kind of take over both people's lives. It's hard to imagine the first spouse having, how could he or she have another job at this point? I guess the other thing about Nancy Reagan is I grew up thinking of her as really evil, I will confess. And now I feel badly about that. In reading about her, I mean, yeah, like she lavishly decorated the White House and sure, like the astrology thing was a little nutty. But but her sense of presentation also, in now that we are so obsessed with image and politics, it, that seems totally understandable that she would have wanted to, you know, have everything look its best in that moment. And I think I also feel sympathy for her because she took a lot of criticism for not having um, a radical mastectomy when she was diagnosed with breast cancer. And now, of course, we feel like People were, you know, chopping off their breasts perhaps unnecessarily. And, like, maybe it was perfectly sensible of her to have been more um, cautious or more incremental in her response. Um, And the only thing I can really find to hold against her now is it really does seem like she and Ronald Reagan had terrible relationships with his kids and with their kids together. Her daughter has accused her of child abuse in a way that's pretty upsetting, although they seem to have reconciled later in life. Anyway, she just seems like a much more complex person to me now, someone who was incredibly difficult and mean to some people and incredibly generous and loyal to other people. You know, the Republican Party basically fell apart starting in 1964 through the Nixon years and the rise of Ford, which was supposed to kind of help some of that. I mean, things were so bad for the Republican Party when Ford came into office that the RNC was printing buttons um, that said Republicans are people too. And Betty Ford, who did a lot of great work in her life and, uh, but as a, as a First Lady was very controversial, talked on 60 Minutes about uh, what she would do if her 18-year-old daughter was having an affair and she was uh, pro-abortion rights. Nancy Reagan, despite her family, and we should talk someday, by the way, about Donald Trump and his relationships with his kids, like totally solid. Like they adore him. So as on that grounds, he is- He's a great guy. You can't imagine. Anyway, but anyway, back back to Nancy Reagan. Leaving aside the actual status of her nuclear family or whatever you want to, however you want to define that family, was a kind of a return as Reagan was. She was a part of the package of returning to traditional values, a marriage in which the wife is the helper of the husband. In reading the clips of in 1976 in particular when Reagan took on Ford, there's a lot of talk about Betty Ford being kind of too modern, part of the liberalization that conservatives were pushing back against from the 60s and into the 70s. And so the the Reagan marriage was a reassertion of a thing that had they thought was being totally undermined by the liberalization in the culture. So she fit that role that, as far as conservatives were concerned, that they really wanted to see on the public stage. 
Why do we find Nancy Reagan's um, involvement in Reagan's presidency to seem kind of sinister? Is it because people were angry with her for orchestrating various firings? Or do we feel like she was usurping power in some way? Like, was there anything wrong with the role she played, actually? I think the, the hiring and firings are part of it. And what it certainly with getting rid of Don Regan, certainly with getting rid of John Sears in the 1980 campaign, she had a, a very strong role to play behind the scenes that that divides uh, Reagan loyalists. I think the criticism is that her excessive effort to protect Reagan created an atmosphere in which Reagan could do no wrong. Mm, And one of the most important things in a presidency, they all say, is that you, you must expel the notion that the president can do no wrong. The president screws up and you don't want everybody to talk about that all day long, but you need to you need to be able to tell him when he's screwed up and when he's wrong and when things need to be fixed and not be so fearful that either he's going to walk your head off or his wife is that you never bring him bad news or sort of tra- tell things the way they are. So I think it's- That in, totally in that. makes sense. I One of the things I really like about the first lady job is that it isn't defined, that actually you can play it in a number of different ways. I like that there's- you can be a Nancy Reagan. You can be a Michelle Obama. I think I, you're right about the freedom to design it in your own way, but it's a freedom that operates that is circumscribed. That is hugely circumscribed. I mean, think about Michelle Obama, who wanted to do things that would seem to have been kind of universally acceptable, which is separate apart from the things she actually did. They all find that they're that they really don't have that much room room to move. You think that will change when we finally have a man being the first I gentleman? Don't, I don't think so because you're. It's like cabinet officials. You know, there's a reason cabinet officials, except for basically the two big ones, are so denuded because anything they do splashes back up on the president. The president can't defend himself against the you know problems caused by cabinet officials. But he has to kind of stand behind them. It just creates a whole bunch of nightmares and headaches, and that obviously gets even more complex in the in the first lady's office. I don't think. I mean, we're in such a hyper reactive period now that it seems to me it actually is getting worse. Hmm. All right, fine. Now let's hear from our other sponsor this week, which is Texture. Thanks to Netflix, we're all binge watching these days. But now with Texture, you can start binge reading. The Texture app lets you tap into the world's most popular magazines anytime, anywhere, using your smartphone or tablet. You can breeze through hundreds of your favorite magazines, including back issues, and pick the articles that interest you the most. Texture has made it easy to find articles you care about. You don't just get to read Newsweek or Popular Mechanics. The Texture editorial team recommends content for you every day. Plus, you can dive deeper with personalized collections. Sign up for Texture right now and gain insider access to all the content from the world's best publications. And the best part, Texture is offering our listeners a free trial right now when you go to texture.com political. You'll gain immediate entry to all of the top magazines, including back issues and bonus video content. Try Texture for free right now when you go to texture.com political. That's texture.com slash political. Let's go to cocktail chatter. Emily, when you are getting oriented at the New York Times as you're being oriented and you go for a post-orientation beer, what are you going to be chattering (laughs) about? I 
have been trying to decide what to make of Maria Sharapova's announcement this week that she just um, tested positive for a banned drug, one I had never heard of, um, called like meldonium. Anyway, she clearly made this announcement because she was hoping that by just fessing up, she would you know, maybe get off a little easier, but just have less criticism, make it seem like she was explaining. And then she gave this explanation that that was an excuse that sounded like she wasn't actually using the drug as a performance enhancer, but rather because it was addressing various health problems she had. So I just don't know what to make of this. And whatever international tennis is called, they just banned the substance in January, but they had given a bunch of warnings about it. Sharapova says she didn't notice that they had banned it and that doesn't seem super plausible. But I found this piece in Vanity Fair by uh, Michael Steinberger to be helpful in just thinking this through. And Steinberger doesn't really buy Sharapova's explanation, but he also asks whether she's being treated, especially by the advertisers who have um, canceled deals with her, as expendable because she's on the, you know, she's old for a tennis player. She's not old, she's 29, but she's sort of at the end of her career. And is there a way in which she's the fall girl for um, tennis and drugs because the sport isn't actually um, putting that much on the line? The other way of thinking about it is she's such a star that actually, like, this is a big deal for the sport. I don't know. It was just interesting. So it's um it's in Vanity Fair. It's called Maria Sharapova's Drug Scandal May Be Darker Than You Think. And if you're following this, um, trying to figure it out as I am, it's worth a read. All right. John Dickerson, what was, are you chattering about? It turns out I'm also um, endorsing a magazine article. This is by our friend Jeffrey Goldberg. It's called The Obama Doctrine. It's a long, 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 uh, I think 19 pages in The Atlantic. And it is great for at least two reasons. One, it's an it's a very long, in-depth look at Obama's foreign policy by somebody who has carried this around in his head for years and has been working on this story in one fashion or another for the entire administration and so it has the benefit of just being a super richly reported piece of journalism. It also secondarily tells us a lot about the way Barack Obama sees the world, which is important not only for understanding his decisions in things like Syria, where he did not enforce the red line, which he is proud of, which is amazing because in in all the meetings I've had with foreign ministers of other countries and heads of state and that kind of thing, which is now a new part of my life, the one thing that they all agree on is that his decision, that Obama's decision not to enforce the red line had huge problems, huge circumstances. I mean, even his vice president thinks it was a it was a massive disaster, not for the lack of action at the specific time, although there are certainly plenty of people who think that was a disaster, but that president's words have to mean something. And then in this case, they didn't. And then it had a... Anyway, so the fact that the president is proud of that is a really interesting idea. And obviously, then it goes on with the disaster in Libya. The fact that he said he learned in Libya that you have to make sure that you have something in place after you have a military action, which was what we thought was the lesson of the Iraq war, the thing against which he ran when he ran for president. Just there is massive, massive uh, interesting things in this piece. But then finally, we are in election season in which, particularly on the Republican side, as uh, former Defense Secretary Robert Gates has said, all nuance, all sense of the complexity of the world ha- has been bleached from the conversation. And it's total blunt back and forth, strong, strong, strength, strong. Um, and so that's dangerous, as anybody who is involved in foreign policy in conservative circles will agree to. In other words, America needs perhaps to be stronger. But 
making it seem like only setting the dial to 11 is the solution to all problems is a uh, is is a big problem so in reading this it's useful to to just sort of use it to to think through how we should be thinking about foreign policy in the context of the presidency which is supposed to be the thing we're thinking about during these campaigns yeah to be fair the democrats are setting it to like seven the Republicans are all 11, 11, 11. Yeah, not, yeah, that's, the what Repu- the Dem- that's what I was saying on the, that's what Gates's, uh, uh critique was of the of the Republicans. Yes, the, and, but I think on the Democratic side, Hillary Clinton is a far more hawkish president than Obama. And so what does that mean and where does that is also an interesting part of this. So my chatter, you ask, my chatter is about an article I read in The Guardian, uh, which made the case, which I don't fully endorse, but I was taken by, that you shouldn't shower every day says that essentially what we're constantly doing is is buying products to replace things that our skin and our hair will naturally do themselves that they will keep themselves moisturized and like mostly smelling good and as long as you're watching washing your your private parts and your under your arms and your feet you're not going to smell and that otherwise your body will really take care of itself um and that that in that this that like the conditioners the the moisturizers it's idiotic that it's like an it's it's a crazy thing to do. I do not have the guts to do this, but I I found it uh, admirable. I think it's irrefutably true. It's just that you can't go out looking, you know, especially if you're in a job where you have to be presentable. Uh, but 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 they're saying that you would look, you'd be okay. Nah, that's not true. <laughs> you ever tried that in the summer? You know, when you go on vacation, it's you know you, standards slip. I guess if you, I have no hair. That's, so yeah, that makes you a difference. Really, and you, you don't need to shave. Yes. Although the truly disgusting thing that I find is is the beard. Like, just disgusting things get in beards. Yeah, no, exactly. And so you, you can't really, not wash your vermin beard. vermin starts to root. Yeah, it's yeah. really, it's really gross. I, don't even, I can't even imagine what you're looking at. There's like, you're, you must be seen. There's probably terrible things in my beard. You're just not saying. But it's definitely true with the skin and the hair. Anyway, so uh, GabFest listeners, try that. But then don't come to our live shows unless you've showered right beforehand. Our intern is El Biscard Church. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer for Panoply. The GabFest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is Slate.com slash GabFest. It has links to what we talked about today. Facebook.com slash GabFest is our Facebook page. At Slate GabFest is our Twitter feed. And our email address is GabFest at Slate.com. Do not forget to come to our Atlanta show if you are going to be in Atlanta on April 27th. We'd love to see you. April 27th in Atlanta, slate.com slash live for tickets. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.